Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the special winter pledge drive edition of a public affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. You know, before we get uh, to our guest today, I just want to spend a spend a brief moment to encourage you to call at 608-256-2001, extension number one, or pledge online to wortfm.org. Joining us in the studio today is my friend, Wart's friend, uh, Matt Rothschild with the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, who is helping us with the, well, the appeal this afternoon. We'll begin to our guest momentarily, but I thought Matt should have a word. Thank you, Alan. It's great to be on with you again. And I want to encourage everybody who uh, appreciates what Alan Ruff does here every Thursday to please pledge your support by dialing 608-256-2001. And we already got one uh, person who has pledged his support. We want, we want to thank Harry Richardson for his uh, generous pledge. He, his favorite shows are Public Affairs, Local News, Labor Radio, I like all those shows myself. I like Tony's show, which I was on this morning. Thanks, Matt. Again, 608-256-2001, extension number one. We have uh, people to take your call in sitting in our lobby here. We're post-COVID in that sense, so give us a call again. Our guest- we've got some great thank you gifts, too, including gift subscriptions to the Progressive Magazine, the old place I used to work at. Our guest today is the journalist, historian, and lecturer at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism, Adam Hochschild. He's the award-winning author of some 11 titles, most widely known among them, perhaps, his acclaimed King Leopold's Ghost on the Holocaust that was Belgian colonialism in the Congo. Earlier in his career, Hochschild was a reporter of the, for the San Francisco Chronicle, a commentator on National Public Radio's All Things Considered, and a co-founder, editor, and writer at Mother Jones Magazine. The subject of our program today is his most recent work, American Midnight. Subtitled The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis, the book primarily recounts what took place domestically in the four years following the April 1917 U.S. entry into World War I. It's an account of one of the darkest periods in this country's history, largely untold or passed over, that laid the foundations for much of the century to come. Adam Hochschild, welcome to uh, WORT. Thank you, Alan. It's good to be with you. Adam, I'm wondering if you might start with a brief description of what you set out to do in American Midnight? Well, I wrote this book during the Trump administration. Uh, I was fascinated for a long time by the period of American history that unfolded about 100 years earlier, because it strikes me that this was the Trumpiest time of American history before Trump. The air was filled with calls for deportation of immigrants and troublemakers of all kinds. Uh, A lot of things went on during that period that Trump would have liked to do and couldn't do, like shutting down dissident media. The federal government uh, between 1917 and 1921 essentially put 75 newspapers and magazines out of business because they were critical of the government. It was also a time when there were a sizable number of people that you can only call political prisoners, Americans sent to jail for a year or more solely because of things that they wrote or said, numbered almost a thousand, and many more were sent for shorter periods of time. And like many unpleasant parts of our history, this tends to get skipped over in high school history textbooks. And that's one thing that made me particularly interested in it. Exacting millions of casualties, dead and wounded, 
The war had raged across Europe and beyond since August of 1914. For a sizable percentage of the U.S. population and for numerous reasons, the war was far from popular, so much so that Wilson had campaigned for re-election in 1916 under the slogan, He Kept Us Out of War. So what was done to turn U.S. entry into a popular crusade and to curtail opposition? What were some of the key elements or factors that came into play? Well, I think Wilson himself during his 1916 re-election campaign was smart enough never to utter the phrase himself, I will keep you out of war. I think in the back of his mind, he had the thought that uh, it might be necessary from his point of view for the United States to go into it. I think what happened was by early 1917, uh, it was clear that the war in Europe was a stalemate. The two sides were dug in in lines of trenches opposing each other across northern France and Belgium. Uh, there was something of a stalemate uh, on the other side as well, where Germany was facing Russia. And Wilson began to realize that if the United States didn't enter the war and tip the balance in favor of the Allies, Americans who'd bought British and French and Russian war bonds would never get paid back. And of course, those who bought the Tsarist Russian war bonds never did get paid back. Uh, and he got an anguished message from his ambassador in London saying that the British and French, they're running out of gold to buy munitions from the U.S. because the U.S. had been the big supplier of war materials to Britain and France. And unless the United States entered the war, uh, we wouldn't get paid for all of these supplies and munitions, ammunition, guns, tanks, planes, and so on that we were sending them. Uh, this, I think, was what tipped Wilson into thinking that it was necessary for the United States to militarily uh, enter the First World War. And on April uh, 2nd, 1917, he went before Congress and asked Congress to declare war. That declaration of war was immediately followed by a range of legislations, um, wartime federal legislation that enabled the curtailment of freedom of expression and speech that opened the door for censorship, hyper-intolerance and violence. Talk about the Espionage Act, which, you know, is still with us today. It's still on the books. It's still on the books, amended somewhat. Ironically, it may be the Espionage Act that gets Donald Trump in trouble for those classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the Espionage Act, which was passed some weeks after the U.S. entered the war, was the crucial piece of repressive legislation. It essentially criminalized public dissent against the war. It was under that act, and the act, by the way, had nothing to do with espionage. Of the 2,000 people uh, indicted under it, uh, only uh, less than a dozen were actually accused of being German spies. Germany had had a spy network in this country, but it had been penetrated and rolled up uh, in 1915, 1916. Uh, the Espionage Act was a way of shutting down dissent. It was under the Espionage Act that all of those political prisoners I mentioned were sent to jail. Uh, you know, the most notable of whom was Eugene Debs, who had been uh, an opponent of Wilson in the 1912 presidential election, getting 6% of the popular vote on the Socialist Party ticket. Uh, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison in 1918 for a speech he made opposing the war. The judge who sentenced him just happened to be the former law partner of Wilson's Secretary of War. Uh, and Debs was still in jail two years after the war ended in November of 1920 when he received more than 900,000 votes on the socialist ticket as a prisoner in the Atlanta penitentiary. The Espionage Act was also used to silence uh, the great radical Emma Goldman for organizing against the draft. She was sent to for two years in prison because of that. And then uh, as soon as she got out of prison, she was deported from the United States where she'd lived for most of her life. It was also under the Espionage Act that the government was able to censor opposition newspapers and magazines. 
because the act gave the power to the postmaster general to declare a publication unmailable, meaning it couldn't travel through the U.S. mails. And for weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion, almost the entire socialist press, almost the entire foreign language press, uh, that was a disaster because they depended on the U.S. mail. And the postmaster general, a dreadful guy, uh, Albert Burleson, a former a congressman from Texas, deeply conservative, used that power to essentially shut down some 75 publications whose opinions he didn't like. You're listening to Adam Hochschild, uh, author, journalist, lecturer. We're discussing his book, his recent book, American Midnight. Got to take a moment here again to remind you all that this is a uh, a pledge drive, a fundraising. Uh, hour uh, in the middle of the pledge, the winter pledge drive. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1. We need your assistance, your contributions to keep on keeping on what we do, what I do week after week, and what others here at the station do. This is your outlet, your I just choked on a word. Well, it's we've got uh, it's your place for community, really, here, and for uh, sharing your views and listening to Alan's views and his guest views on some of the crucial issues of our day. You get real uh, profound insights, at least I do, about uh, what's going on in the world. I know one of our uh, supporters here who called in, Harry, said he really appreciates Alan's international knowledge. We just got pledges from Ron, who's actually giving on a monthly basis, uh, and a pledge from Richard, who likes Alan's uh, program and SD Newers all talk global revolution. And uh, where else but on WRT do you get to hear this? You know, I love when I'm driving around Wisconsin and I'm coming back into WRT range because it feels like coming back home. I know I'm home or will shortly be in my own house, and I have WRT just bringing me in the last few miles and listening to really stimulating conversation uh, that you don't get on other stations. It's really part of being in Madison what makes Madison Madison. So I want to urge you to call at 608-256-2001 or pledge online at wortfm.org, and we've got some great gifts for you, too, when you do so. Adam Hochschild, it's clear that the uh, atmosphere of state-backed intolerance opened the door to settling scores that predated the war. At some level, the war provided an excuse, as, as you've written, an opportunity for employers and capital to clamp down on labor militancy, especially on those outside the AFL uh, with its no-strike pledge uh, labor peace. A primary target became the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, or the Wobblies. Talk about that war against the Wobblies, part of a gener- that par- generalized offensive against domestic enemies, real and imagined. Yeah, well, you know, the myth is that until it was reluctantly drawn into the First World War, the United States was a peaceful country. But it wasn't a very peaceful country. One of several... Uh, areas of enormous strife we had was that of capital against labor. Uh, Routinely, dozens of people were killed in labor violence each year. Just in 1913-14 alone, more than 70 people died as uh, police, local militia, company detectives suppressed a miners' strike in Colorado. So this was a very violent time in American labor history. The war provided an excuse for the government to carry out a crackdown. And as you mentioned, Alan, the <clears throat> recipients of the worst of that crackdown were the Wobblies, the industrial workers of the world, the country's most militant labor union. Um, they were not a large part of the labor force. They never represented more than about 5% of American unionized workers. Um, they actually had a principled belief against signing contracts with, instru- with employers, which is not exactly a very good way to be successful as a labor union, but their verve and dazzle and outspoken radicalism captured the public imagination. Unlike most unions at the time, they were open to everybody, men and women. 
immigrants and native born, black and white. You didn't find that in many other unions. The government considered them a threat because even though the Wobblies as an organization never took a stand on the war, the government knew that its members overwhelmingly opposed the war. Moreover, in 1917, the Wobblies were quite influential in half a dozen strikes which were causing problems in war industries. So there was a sweeping crackdown. Hundreds of Wobblies were arrested in the fall of 1917. They were put on trial in several big mass trials around the country. The one in Chicago had uh, more than 100 defendants. It, it was and remains the largest civilian criminal trial in American history. By the time the trial ended, there were 90-some defendants. Uh, <clears throat> the trial went on for four months. The men were charged with four counts each, so the jury theoretically had to render you know, more than 370 separate verdicts of guilty or innocent for each person on each count. They deliberated less than an hour, found everybody guilty on all counts. The judge passed out 807 years of prison time. And there's a wonderful quotation as the Wobblies headed off to prison, Big Bill Haywood, who was their most prominent leader, wrote to his friend, uh, the journalist John Reed, and Haywood, by the way, had been a saloon card dealer in his youth. He wrote to John Reed, uh, we lost the big game. The other fellow had cut shuffle and deal. Again, 608-256-2001. Give us a call with a contribution, a donation to keep WRT 89.9 FM up and running 24-7, 365 for so many years now and going toward the future. Adam Huckshield, alongside the attack on the Wobblies, federal, state, and local, by federal, state, and local authorities, they were also involved in a host of non, not, excuse me, with a host of non-state actors carried out an all-out offensive against the Socialist Party as well. You alluded to that, but of course, certainly with the left wing of the Socialist Party uh, and the Wobblies, there was a lot of uh, crossover, uh, and uh, in a sense, that was the political wing of, of that larger movement. Yeah, the Socialist Party was very much a target of the government as well. Uh, and Wilson and the people around him and his administration felt it as a threat. They were particularly alarmed when in the fall of 1917, six months after the U.S. had ended the war, the Socialists did extremely well in municipal elections, gaining more than 20% of the vote in 14 of the country's largest cities, more than 30% in several. They gained 22% in New York. And Wilson was terrified that in the midterm congressional elections the next year, 1918, if the socialists did well, they could end up holding the balance of power in the House of Representatives where uh, Wilson's Democrats uh, had the majority only by a few votes. So an all-out assault on the Socialist Party began. Its newspapers were shut down, most of them. Uh, you know, a large number of socialists were arrested under the Espionage Act and accused of making anti-war statements. If they had all been in one prison, they could have had a decent-sized party meeting or party congress behind bars. And Eugene Debs, the socialist leader, of course, was the most uh, prominent of those arrested, but other people as well. One of the people I follow in the book is Kate Richards O'Hare, who was the most prominent woman socialist, an enormously popular orator, especially in the uh, Midwestern states where she had grown up in, in Kansas. Uh, she had run for Congress in, or the Senate in both Kansas and Missouri. She was sent to prison for two years and actually found herself in the very next cell to Emma Goldman. And the two women who came from very different political uh, traditions on the outside became very close friends. And each of them wrote very warmly in their recollections and letters about the other. 
And when you're a writer like me who likes to build a book out of the stories of individual characters that you're following through a, a period, when you have two of those characters who become friends and who write about each other, it's just a writer's dream. The war at home gave the war at home gave birth to what is now referred to as the commonly referred to as the national surveillance state. Talk about the army's military intelligence division under Ralph Deman uh, and domestic surveillance during the war. Yeah, that was really a remarkable thing. Ralph and Ralph and Deman was an army officer who had discovered his vocation, so to speak, in the Philippines, when during the Philippine War, that very brutal anti-colonial war that the U.S. waged for some years, starting in 1899, he was in charge of something called the Bureau of Insurgent Records, which kept track of Filipino subversives, i.e. Filipino nationalists who didn't want their islands to become an American uh, colony. Uh, and he used the most advanced information management system of the day, which was file cards to keep track of these people. And you can see these file cards, and I have, in the National Archives in Washington. When World War I came along, Van Diemen was stuck in a desk job at the War Department, but he immediately saw the chance to go back into the surveillance business and managed to convince the Secretary of War to let him set up uh, a military intelligence division uh, whose focus of intelligence would not be the Germans in France, but they would be subversive Americans at home. Within a year, he had a thousand people working for him and a number of offices around the country, military and civilian, and they amassed a huge amount of material, which again, you can look at in the National Archives today, uh, snooping on Americans. Uh, radicals, labor organizers, uh, uh, you know, war opponents of all sorts. And this was only one arm of the government's surveillance operation during this era. Another arm, which we can talk about, took place under the Department of Justice. Go ahead with that. My next question was uh, another precedent-setting practice has to do with the use of undercover agents and infiltrators and agents provocateur by the Department of Justice. Um, they're not supposed to do that, I don't think. That's right. Uh, <laughs> at that time, the Department of Justice had something called the Bureau of Investigation, which merely added federal to its name some years later. So it's basically the same outfit as the FBI. Uh, and up to that point, it had been a fairly small unit in the department, but the government was really worried about this anti-war feeling and the idea that radicals might you know, derail the war effort in some way. So the, the Bureau of Investigation grew enormously. And many uh, people, uh, almost all men, but a few women, one of whom is in the book, uh, <clears throat> came to work for the Bureau who had previously been private detectives employed by industry to bust labor unions. And one of the characters through whom I, I am telling the story in American Midnight uh, is a man named Leo Wendell, who was sent by the Bureau of Investigation to infiltrate the Wobblies and other left-wing groups in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, you know, big industrial city, center of war industry, and so on. He, when they formed a Wobbly branch there, Wendell was elected its recording secretary, recording and financial secretary. He joined the Socialist Party. He joined the local radical library. He was on the committee for the uh, strike committee for a steelworkers strike. He was everywhere. He was leading demonstrations. He was giving speeches. And the whole time, he was sending three or four reports a week to the Bureau of Investigation. And these two, thanks to the National Archives, you can read today. Uh, the Bureau wanted to maintain his credibility, so they several times arranged for him to be very conspicuously arrested, like dragged away when he was giving a speech to a socialist meeting, for example. So people would think, oh, this guy really, the government really does think he's a dangerous radical. For some reason, his comrades never seemed to wonder why after each arrest, he was never sent to prison, but, you know, just spent a few nights in jail and 
surfaced again and went back to work several days later. He wasn't exposed until uh, uh, six years after the war. Official state repression, coercion, and violence was accompanied and assisted by a number of volunteer citizens groups, uh, as well as civilian vigilante mob violence aimed at nonconforming, the nonconforming of every description. Tell our listeners about the American Protective League. That was the most important of these citizen vigilante organizations. It was formed in early 1917, just before the country entered the war, but when it was pretty clear that was going to happen, by a Chicago advertising executive. And it grew enormously. By the end of that year, 1917, it had 250,000 members. The American Protective League was officially chartered by the Justice Department as a kind of civilian vigilante auxiliary. Uh, The kind of people it attracted were men who were slightly too old uh, to serve in the military, but who still wanted to feel that they were patriotically supporting the war effort here at home. Uh, So if you joined the American Protective League, you got a little badge like a a police officer or a firefighter wears, a sort of an oval shield uh, that said, uh, you know, American Protective League. It had your rank, captain, lieutenant, chief, or mere operative. And then it said in the middle of the badge, you know, auxiliary to the U.S. Department of Justice. And with these these badges, Tens of thousands of of American Protective League members fanned out through all the major American cities, making citizens' arrests of young men who might be draft dodgers. And anybody who couldn't produce a draft card or documentation showing that they were already in the military was hustled off uh, and held, often roughed up and then held in police stations, warehouses, any space that can be commandeered for sometimes for several days at a time until desperate family members could get them the right uh, documentation. And in a few cases, there were people who were dodging a draft who were sent off to the army. But this happened on an enormous scale, these raids, slacker raids, they were called, all over the country. And as I say, it was a way of these slightly older men feeling that they were still fighting the war. You're listening to our guest today, Adam Hochschild. Uh, we're talking about the American midnight of the World War I era and really what it means. Uh, it doesn't, it's, you don't have to make a big leap to see the connections to the present, those kinds of connections that we make here on a regular basis on a public affair at WORT 89.9 FM. Matt, uh, someone, you know, uh, with the uh, Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, what strikes you so far about... Well, it's just, yeah, it's just what you're talking about here, Alan, the the history, the trajectory of American repression, Uh, the fact that we've been here before, and actually that it was worse before and could get even worse here today. I think that's what's so eerie about Adam Hochschild's discussion right now with you. I also want to urge people to pledge. This is pledge, pledge day. We got three pledges uh, in the last few minutes. We're supposed to get ten during this hour. We've got six so far. We need four more. Uh, the phone number to call is 608-256-2001 or go online and pledge at wardfm.org. I want to thank uh, Frankie, who gives a shout-out to Alan and says it was great to see you at Kathy's uh, memorial event at the Harmony. She was a longtime receptionist here and a wonderful person. Uh, he doesn't want a, a thank you gift. We got a generous donation from Charlie Luthen, who loves tropical rhythms, uh, musica antiqua, rock and John. We got another donation from or pledge from another person named John who gets one of these schnazzy work T-shirts. So you can get your own gift for uh, generously donating WRT by calling 608-256-2001 or going online at wardfm.org. 608-256-2001, extension 1. While all this was going on, Adam Hochschild, uh, <clears throat> the government also launched a massive wartime propaganda campaign. Uh, the Committee on Public Information and the Shaping of Wartime Public Opinion, uh, well, it gave birth to the symbiotic relationship between advertising and politics so visible today, um, war experience 
uh, demonstrated that public opinion could be shaped and manipulated by the authorities. The birth it really became the birth of what came to be known as the public relations industry. Talk about the CPI. Yeah. Well, that's a good question, Alan, because uh, one, and it is one of the things I deal with at American Midnight, as somebody who's been in and out of journalism all my life, I was particularly fascinated by the fact that this period that I write about in American Midnight really saw the birth of a massive government effort to influence what appeared in the nation's journalism, which in those days, of course, was entirely print journalism because there were no radio shows like this one, no internet, no TV. Uh, and that effort was successful. The Committee on Public Information was a massive operation. They had offices around the country. They had squads of people doing every imaginable thing. Their most, the thing that they were most famous for was something called the Four Minute Men, who were a squadron of people, 70,000 altogether, who would pop up and give four minute speeches in many different places, uh, you know, Rotary Club meetings, women's clubs meetings, and particularly in movie theaters where it traditionally took a projectionist four minutes to change the reels of a silent film. Normally, people during that time saw advertisements from local businesses uh, projected on the screen, but now once the Committee on Public Information had been formed, they got they saw a notice on the screen saying, stand by, stay in your seats, a U.S. government representative will be talking to you. And then, you know, a four-minute man, as they were called, and they were all men, uh, would pop up and give a patriotic speech about the advances uh, our boys were making on the front, or uh, the need to conserve strategic materials at home, or how to be on the lookout for subversives or whatever. They had people going around and doing this in other languages. Uh, they had all the country's ethnic groups covered. They produced a blizzard of posters, uh, feature stories written of the kind that newspapers and magazines would want to run. And newspapers and magazines obediently ran them because wartime censorship meant that they couldn't get embedded correspondence at the front. So it was really a hugely successful attempt by the U.S. government to manipulate the media on a massive scale. And the press fell for it and let themselves be used by and large. There were some notable exceptions. We should mention, you know, Wisconsin's own Robert LaFollette, who was really the most outspoken elected official in Congress speaking against the war. And he continued to publish the Follett's magazine, which the government never did shut down, although they threatened it a couple of times. The uh, Follett's magazine that eventually became the progressive. Uh, but that was a rare exception. Again, 608-256-2001, extension one. If you want to, you know, think about what you're hearing here and think about where else you're going to get it, uh, few and far between. So, again, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1. And we've got a couple of people who have already pledged in the last couple of minutes, Alan, uh, in including David P., who loves your show and the diversity of music and labor radio here. Uh, we also got an online pledge. Uh, and the pleasure, uh, the person who is supporting the station is going to get one of those schnazzy olive T-shirts. Uh, thanks to Carl for that. Uh, and you, if you've been listening to this show or if you're a longtime listener to Alan's show, you know the value you get out of this show. So please dial 608-256-2001 or go online and pledge at wartfm.org. Adam Hochschild, another key component of the war period repression had to do with the enforcement of the color line. White racist terror that undergirded the post-Reconstruction South and enforced Jim Crow for decades prior to the war intensified nationwide following the U.S. entry. Why was that? Well, let's look at the history here. As you know, uh, as your listeners know, I'm sure, you know, the Union won the Civil War in 1865. Uh, 
Then came Reconstruction, which got canceled. Uh, and then over the next few decades, the South basically won the Civil War by uh, disenfranchising blacks, installing Jim Crow laws everywhere, and making sure that black Americans were second-class citizens in every possible way. This began to change around 1910 when the Great Migration started, as black Americans began to flee the South, hoping for better conditions and more justice elsewhere. The South, for them, life in the South was a reign of terror. It was a region where there was often an average of one lynching a week somewhere in the Southern United States. They began moving to Northern cities, but they often found themselves not welcomed there because uh, you know, if a large number of extremely poor black migrants came into a neighborhood, people who were already living there felt threatened, they felt their property values going down, they met with a lot of hostility, and many labor unions and the like barred them from joining. So this was the US at the time that it entered the First World War. Then a couple of things happened. One was that the Wilson administration, which had been in office since 1913, was an administration dominated by conservative white Southerners who uh, resegregated what little desegregation had happened inside the federal government. By the end of Wilson's time in office, there were fewer African-Americans working for the federal government than there had been at the beginning. Uh, Wilson rarely said a word against lynching, made no attempt to pass any kind of national anti-lynching law. And then the, uh, the war exacerbated things because black Americans were drafted just like everybody else. When they came home, they hoped that their military service would entitle them to greater respect here. It did not. Uh, in the year 1919, for instance, some 70 Americans were lynched, almost all of them black, 11 of them black veterans, and three of those veterans, men in uniform, because Southerners were just terrified by the thought that, you know, their black fellow citizens would have learned military skills and might have gotten ideas about raising their status. Furthermore, the year after the war, 1919, which saw really the worst racial violence in this country in terms of number of deaths since the immediate aftermath of slavery. Um, what happened there was that 4 million men were released from the armed forces that year. Black and white veterans were competing for jobs and there weren't enough jobs because the factories making planes and ships and tanks and guns for the war had shut down. So that led to racial warfare in many different cities, which gets into the history books as race riots, but they really should be called white riots, because in almost every case, they were initiated by white mobs. Talk for a second about the first in that series of uh, white terror conflagrations, really, uh, at East St. Louis in 1917. Yeah, that was, uh, that was two years in advance of the other big conflagrations, but it happened after the war began. East St. Louis was a grimy industrial city in Illinois, just across the river from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, industry, steel, iron, meatpacking, other industries there, a place where there were many black immigrants from the South, uh, the white people in town largely didn't want them there, wanted to make the city what they call the sundown town, where uh, blacks could come there to work during the day, but they had to get out of town by sundown. Uh, nonetheless, many of these black folks stayed there. Uh, fighting broke out. Uh, more than 30 of them, almost more than 30 people, almost all black, were killed. We don't know the full death toll because many of the victims' bodies were simply flown, thrown into the Mississippi River and floated downstream. How else might we understand the intensity of the wartime, of wartime reaction, the widespread intolerance, hysteria, repression, and fear, especially among the established orders, the old orders, white males? 
Well, I think we have to look at it this way. Entering a war always, almost always, a major war sets off a kind of hysteria in a country because it provides the excuse to act violently on all sorts of feelings that were already there. And we've talked about some of the tensions that were already roiling the United States between business and labor, for instance, and between blacks and whites. There was yet another one of those tensions, which was between nativists and immigrants. All through its history, the United States has been torn by conflict over the issue of immigration, where usually it's people whose ancestors came here several generations ago who are resenting those who are coming now or whose ancestors just came one generation ago. Today, most of that anti-immigrant ire you know, is directed against people coming over the southern border from Latin America. In those days, a hundred years and more ago, it was anti-immigrant feeling on the part of uh, Americans of Anglo-Saxon or Northern European descent directed against immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe, which meant basically uh, Italians, Poles, and Jews. Tremendously strong feeling on that score, which also broke out into violence on occasion, and uh, which culminated in the 1924 Immigration Act, which essentially slammed the door on new immigrants to this country for more than 40 years. That was the act that kept out what otherwise would have been hundreds of thousands of refugees from the Holocaust. Now, another part of that, of course, was the changing uh, of that change taking place in the traditional order uh, had to do with transformation of gender roles. Uh, anxiety spurred by the suffrage movement and demands for prohibition and anti-war groups, which were often led by women's organizations. That was an aspect of the history that I'm uh, fairly familiar with that you touch on that I found very interesting. I think you're right. That was another battlefront in the United States of this era between men and women. A couple things were going on there. The women's suffrage movement through the 19-teens was clearly on its way to victory, which finally came in, in 1920 with the passage of the America Amendment that allowed all women to vote. They had been voting in some state elections up to that point, but now they could vote uh, everywhere. Uh, that was unsettling to many men. Uh, it took women out of the traditional role. Uh, also unsettling to many men was the fact that more women were coming into the labor force uh, previously, uh, in the mid and late 19th century, majority of Americans had been doing things like working on farms where male and female roles were very well defined. You know, the man was out in the field, he was chopping down trees or whatever, the woman was, you know, in the house cooking and canning food for winter and that sort of thing. Uh, at least in theory, that's what happened. You know, some women had to do the rough work in the fields as well if they were widowed or the man went off to fight in a war or something. Uh, then World War I came, four million American men did go off to fight in the war, and women surged into the workplace in a way they had not been before. And employers often found they did the job better than men did. And furthermore, they were able to work in and to get photographed in traditionally male jobs, you know, being electricians and firefighters and all sorts of other things. A lot of men found this very upsetting. Uh, and I think just the, that upset mood in the air it, it made it no accident that several of the outspoken opponents of the war who were most conspicuously prosecuted were women. Emma, Emma Goldman and Kate Richards O'Hare we've talked about. Another woman I describe in American Midnight is Marie Equi, a very outspoken uh, lesbian feminist in Portland, Oregon, who was an ardent opponent of the war. Uh, the police would arrest her when she, whenever she started to give a speech, and she finally found the one place that they uh, couldn't reach her, which was this. She borrowed the crampons of a telephone uh, repair lineman climbed to the top of a telephone pole 
and orated from there. And the Portland police could not arrest her until she came down. She ended up spending almost a year in prison. You know, Adam Huckshield, we're getting right close to the end of the hour, and we've only delved into a part of the book. It's There's so much in it. Uh, but I, I do want to spend some remaining minutes uh, talking about the fact uh, that the sh- there was a shift that took place. Once the war was over in November of uh, 18, almost uh, almost overnight in some instances, the enemy became no, no longer German, uh, but uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, and what that all led to that, in a sense, trickles into that early anti-communist crusade uh, and how it trickles at some level down to the present. Yeah, that, the nature of the hysteria changed. Uh, previously, it had all been elected, all been directed against Germans and pro-Germans and anybody speaking German, and they made bonfires of German books and forbade the teaching of German language in, in many states and so on. Then November 1917 came the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, where the Bolsheviks, the most radical faction, seized power there. Many Americans in the establishment were terrified that, uh, not realistically, I think, but they still felt it, that the Russian Revolution would spread to the United States. So that added to the hysteria already in the air that was directed against people like the Wobblies, the Socialist Party, and so forth. It fattened the budgets of agencies like the Bureau of Investigation. Uh, And states and cities got into the act and passed their own versions of the Espionage Act, set up, you know, red squads and city police departments and that kind of thing, you know, which stayed with us for decades after that time. This was the birth of the anti-communist hysteria, which, you know, has been part of American life for almost a century. Ironically, this is a country where anti-communism has always been a tremendously influential force, both in the period I write about in American Midnight and later in the McCarthy years. Communism has never amounted to much of anything. Uh, When the Soviet Union collapsed, the American Communist Party had only something like uh, 5,000 members, and it's estimated that about 1,500 of them were FBI informants. So a strange country where anti-communism has been far more powerful than communism. Talk about, you know, one thing, a parallel with the present that's still with us. Um, Talk about the influenza pandemic of 1918-19, its origins, uh, and how it played into, fed into the mass hysteria and concern. There's also an element, of course, of denialism uh, that existed then that is still with us. I think it did heighten the hysteria because you couldn't talk about it openly. Given wartime censorship, the worst wave of the pandemic came in October of 1918 when the United States was still at war with Germany. So you couldn't talk about it in the press, but people knew that this terrible and badly understood disease was taking an awful toll, a toll that was in proportion, a much greater proportion of the American population succumbed to influenza uh, at that time than they did to to COVID many years later. Um, And things happened like, for example, the worst hit city was uh, Philadelphia. There was one day in 1918 when there were more than 700 excess deaths in Philadelphia. That's more than 700, 700 deaths more than there would have been on an average day. And I looked at the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer the next morning. There was no mention of this, whatever. But people all around them could see, you know, carts full of dead bodies going through the street, driven by masked people. They could see bodies piling up in the morgues and so on. They knew something terrible was happening. Nothing appeared about it in the press except for denials here and there. Uh, And I think this added to the sense of eeriness and fear that something sinister was going on. 
You know, we're going to have to draw to a close very shortly, Adam Hawkshield, because we want to do some last-minute ple- uh, encouraging pledges. <laughs> Fundraising for the station. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. The um, but I, Adam, your book is a, a book for the present, as we've already alluded to. It's a history that bears many lessons for our current age. What would you highlight as the most important of those lessons for those concerned with the contemporary state of the Union, uh, mostly concerned, of course, uh, with maintaining democratic institutions and civil liberties? I think the big lesson, Alan, is that democracy is fragile. You know, we've got a lot of great things about this country, a way of free speech and democracy and constitutional protections and so on. But when there is a crisis... And in 1917, the U.S. was hit by double crises, entering the largest war the world had yet seen and the the imagined threat that the Russian Revolution might spread to the United States. When there's a crisis, all of our democratic safeguards can be perilously fragile. So I think we have to always be on the alert, never take any of these things for granted, know that they have to be fought for, they have to be fought for hard, and that they can be threatened by events that we can't foresee, and we have to be prepared. Well, I want to thank you very much, Adam Hochschild, uh, for your marvelous book that I highly recommend, American Midnight, The Great War of Violent Peace and Democracy's Forgotten Crises. We're right down to the end of the hour here, but again, I want to encourage you uh, to... Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 1. You can pledge online at wortfm.org as well. Matt, a closing word. Yeah, well, I just want to thank you, Alan, for that very thoughtful, guided conversation with Adam Hochschild, which was very stimulating. We have uh, several people who have uh, pledged their support or donated since uh, we last jumped in here. Uh, One was a man who goes by the name of Uneven Stephen. He was excited about today's program, uh, as I've been. And if you've been excited by the program, too, please dial 608-256-2001 or pledge at wardfm.org. I also want to thank Kevin. Uh, who loves the Thursday show, Scott Beneke, who pledged and loves democracy now, a big fan of uh, public affairs and the morning buzz, uh, Charlie Presser, who uh, donated online, and all the other pledgers who we've acknowledged already. I also want to thank the phone answers, Gil and Shally and Barbara and Warren and Sybil. I want to thank the food donor, Just Veggies. And it's a pleasure as always being with you. Well, it's a pleasure having you sitting across the table from me. It's been a long time. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. I want to thank Chuck, our engineer, Jade, our producer, and I'll be talking with you next week. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to-